0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the latest edition of Over a Barrel Um, in this format. Bit of a tease there. We'll talk a bit bit more about that later. But I'm delighted to introduce a new co-host to um, Over the Barrel in Apollo's very own Phil Westmoreland. Welcome, Phil. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Thank you. It's great to have you here uh, uh, on what we want, want to do uh, with with the podcast, um, bit of a change of direction for us, and uh, as I said, uh, we'll, we'll talk about a bit more about that later. But absolutely delighted, Phil, to welcome you to the podcast and uh, bring your views and uh, knowledge to the topics that we talk about in net zero and decarbonisation challenges. So perhaps you could kick off and you could uh, introduce yourself and what you do at Apollo.
1: No problem. Thanks, Jonathan. So. <clears throat> Um, I joined Apollo as a senior process engineer back in, I think, around about 2013 now. Uh, and then I worked my way up through uh, my journey at Apollo from senior to principal. And then I was a tech safety manager. Then I looked after process optimization as a as a business unit in Apollo. And then we merged that into consultancy. So I was a consultancy manager. And then I took a more overarching approach. Um, view on Apollo and became technical director so part of that role was looking at uh, new industries and new areas that we could explore and different additional products that we could develop etc and that quite neatly led on to my current role which is a decarbonization uh, director so uh, really it meant that I spent a lot of my t- time solving sort of novel and challenging problems and that's a lot of that's from a and plant perspective but also as apollo as a business as well and um, so my current role as the as a decarbonization uh, director or the leader of that unit is um, the purpose of that unit is to be a, a sort of tour de force in the transition to an efficient low carbon society so that's sort of the purpose of the unit and then i would say the pitch of that unit is to look to empower our clients with that sort of comprehensive knowledge to make those informed decisions that they need to do regarding transitioning of either their operations or their process it uh,
0: just there's a lot going on there phil so you studied uh, yeah. uh, chemical engineering as a first degree is that right
1: yeah so i i went down like the traditional route and did maths and chemistry at school and then and then yep. did a a um a chemical engineering degree well i did it i actually did a master's in, in chemical engineering uh and then i've carried that on um professionally and now i'm a fellow of the I, chartered engineer and a fellow of the icame um and so so you can sort of see that i love press engineering yeah. um and you should see how i've got my sort of heating system plumbed in at home i've even got a pin idea <laughs> about it it's probably a it's probably for a different podcast you know
0: yeah i'm not sure if that's uh, the effects, <laughs> uh... Interesting or quite sad, Phil, but anyway, yeah. <laughs> so with your, with your technical background and you've really, you've come up through the ranks at Apollo, uh, I am assuming um, your early career very much focused on oil and gas projects? Um,
1: it, it did, yeah. Um, so the sort of project types that I've sort of worked on over that my career at Apollo were sort of have been oil and gassy, but also, um, energy transitioning as well. So I've done, yeah. um, emissions reduction studies. I've done flare gas recovery studies, uh, process optimization, which obviously entails elements of energy, uh, reduction and, uh, right sizing equipment. I did do a stint on a wind farm verification support. I was having a look oh. at his background for this to see what other projects <laughs> I worked on, uh, flare and blow down modeling late life facet extension work. Power station risk assessments, carbon Amazing. capture due diligence. So there's like a quite a, a, a plethora of different types of projects that I've worked on over my Apollo years.
0: Yeah, that, that, that I guess that gives in your role now as decarbonisation director, that gives you a very g- broad understanding of of some of the challenges that uh, you, your client your clients face. And in your role now as decarbonisation director, you want to talk a bit about some of the, the jobs that you're doing now just to give, a, give the audience a feel of, of, of some of the, the project skill base that you're, you're looking at?
1: Yeah, so, so one of the so our, probably the biggest projects at the moment is a, an energy hub, hub concept. So that's looking at how an asset can transition um, into sort of creating renewable energy um, and that's primarily down an alternative fuel route. So looking at how it could produce other um, fuels that have that could be used for energy like methanol, like ammonia. Um, there's an element of hydrogen in there, um, uh, how to produce sustainable aviation fuels. And it's very much this uh, conceptual thinking and building the business case together and understanding what bits of kit need to go where and how big would this need to be. And sort of answering some of those fundamental questions and ultimately coming up with a what would be the levelized cost of x that you're going to produce so that's probably the biggest one we've got on at the moment but we're also working on quite a few other alternative fuel studies as well as whether as well as supporting the gas uh, distribution network um, in terms of their energy transition Um, so there's a lot of a lot going on, um, hmm. sort of in this in this space. I would say it's very yeah. complex and dynamic.
0: Yeah, I think we we both experience that in our day to day jobs. Uh, how dynamic uh, the net zero world is, and it's greatly given us a background there of some of the work <coughs> and opportunities opportunities that you're doing. And I don't want to go down into a, a technical podcast route on the pros and cons of hydrogen for domestic heating we'll save that for an, another podcast it's really yeah. is to uh understand you and what make, make, makes you tick so maybe we could we could rewind a little bit and uh talk about what got you interested in engineering in the first place you, you talked about a, a traditional stem uh, uh um, entrance into science and uh, and mass background entrance into into engineering um you know what, got, what 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 makes you interested in 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 getting into engineering and what you do now and energy in 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 your personal life
1: um yeah so i I'll just go I'll just sort of describe when I came out of university I went into a a job which meant that I developed um dynamic simulations of um functioning process plants. Which meant that I got to see a hell of a lot of um, P and IDs, and a hell of a lot of different types of plant, and whether they're from a power station, a margarine plant, oil and gas terminals, chemical manufacturing, nuclear. And I think that gave me that grounding and that um, understanding of plant to move into the roles that I do at Apollo. But before before all of that, before I even went to university I did A levels, then I um. I grew up on a farm, a farm in East Yorkshire, and and being a farmer, it's all about practical problem solving on a budget. I would say, and making best yeah, use, absolutely. making best use of w- what you have. And I think that's probably always in my blood. And um, farmers are sort of renowned for limiting cash spend, and my dad <laughs> was no different. And we're also Yorkshire from yorkshire it it was a it was a um a definitely a cost-driven thing for a lot of the things that we
0: did on the farm so so a good good analogy for a a a a, an asset owner today running the asset whether it be a process system or power generation system running that on a budget on a day-to-day basis with the typical operational problems you get every day think like a farmer yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so the farm was sort of arable and and livestock Um we had our sort of primary product as it were was was growing chickens um so uh, for, for the farm you need to meet sort of basic needs of animals obviously and energy is a big part of that as well as really food and then warmth and energy is obviously in the warm part of it um and so probably telling my age, but back in the 80s um, when I was growing up there, then we had a lot of power cuts back then. Um, yeah. You know, the, the the village went down quite often, particularly normally in a storm. Um, so for a farm, energy security is pretty important, uh, specifically in the winter when you need heat and in the summer, specifically for chickens, you need cooling or you need fans. Yeah. So there's obviously a large dependency on that that energy and then that can lead to significant impacts on on mortality of, of your of your birds. So um back then my dad invested in like a l a large generator for the farm because he saw that the the grid connect was the, the pivotal thing that would keep the birds alive and you couldn't do without it. You can always feed by hand and things like that and water wasn't an issue. Um, so we had this generator on the farm which in the middle of the night, alarms used to go ringing when we had a power cut, which meant everyone mm. in the house was awake. It'd be like three AM, and they would be down to go and hook the tractor up to the PTO off the tractor onto the the generator <laughs> <laughs> and start <laughs> generating ele- you know electricity. Um, yeah. There was always quite an interesting one where you had to come, you had to swap the generator back over to the grid. So there was there was oh. like this clever control system that was going on. But you also had to like get your revs to the right um limit on the tractor and there's all sorts of things and make sure it was always fueled up and and things. So there was always that joy of connecting a tractor up in the middle of a storm, um, which was which was quite interesting. But you know, electricity was just one part of it. You know, the sheds, um we the sheds were obviously lit. We had a, a feed tra uh track our track that went round which was feed and everything that was uh run by electricity but our heat wasn't supplied by electricity and that's because to to heat something takes a hell of a lot of electricity and the and mm. the, the grid connect is not not was not there for the farm so what we had is we did um we had lpg tanks a so large lpg tanks on the farm which did something like four to six months worth of of gas supply to these gas hanging heaters. Um, so that created that stability in terms of being able to heat the, there was, we was always guaranteed that we'd be able to provide heat because you knew when the LPG was running down. So you just, we had two tanks, so not a dual standby, but we could always fill one up while the other one was, was there. Uh, so I'd say we had pretty good energy storage on site. Um, we also had a grain dryer as well, which is a big energy, um, or a big electrical demand so you would yeah. have to do some elements of load shedding if there was a power cut in the wind in not in the winds in the summer and you had the grain dryer going on so you'd have to shut that down because it couldn't the generator wasn't big much. enough to do to do the yeah. whole
0: so you're managing a whole microgrid
1: yeah absolutely and um and that you know managing that microgrid doesn't come without um challenges and it and it's and it, and it comes with cost as well. So there's obviously the capex yeah. cost of having a generator, but that was insignificant compared to losing a whole shed of of chickens. So I think at any one time there was something like 30,000 chickens on the farm, We which, which sounds a lot, but you know, these chickens, uh, it's not like a battery. It wasn't a battery farm. These chickens mm-hmm. were in large open sheds with free roaming. So they had like a significant amount of space but that comes with a cost to heat and, and power yeah. and everything like that. And I think that comes on to the power bit. We had back then there was no LED. So we had these um, filament bulbs, 60 watt yeah. filament bulbs um, all around. So my dad, back in the, probably the late eighties now, because I do sort of remember the, these conversations I had with him that um, the the supermarkets that we sold to were driving down the cost of, what they were prepared to pay, so the the squeeze on the farmer to drive down margins. So, uh, in my the ultimate wisdom, of my dad he thought, right, we need to save power costs because that's one of our biggest things. We can't save much on feed because they, you know, they eat a certain amount. So, my dad introduced a day and night, which does sound quite strange. Why wouldn't they have a day and night in a chicken shed? Yeah. But they, they they didn't back in those days. It's quite draconian right. to think about of it. But the idea was that. Uh, you want to fatten the chickens up as quick as you can so you just keep them feeding and have food there available all the time
0: hours a day yeah yeah
1: but so my dad my dad introduced this like 8 hours of darkness uh which was a bit tricky at the start because you had to put yeah you had to you, we started off with 1 hour and then suddenly you find that you do 1 hour of darkness and you lose so many beds because they get um shock, stress, shock. so you have to do yeah. with this gradually over no. but once they're little you can do it quite quickly yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the idea was then to save the power. The power cost for eight mm-hmm. hours because. Mm-hmm. So I did some little quick calcs, um, in prep for this podcast, and I think we had about fifteen kilowatts of lighting. And if you replaced all that with LEDs, you'd get down to less than a kilowatt of lighting.
0: Yeah, a
1: lot of heat. Yeah, no, no less than a kilowatt of of light because you only need like four oh, saving saving. Yeah, oh, yeah right. four yeah. four four kilowatt. Uh, four watts for an LED light. Um, so you'd save like on today's prices, like thirty grand a year, if my dad swapped to LEDs. But we didn't have that option, so we swap. We in in essence dropped the power. Um, but yeah. there's always um, there's always additional benefits whenever you do something that you don't really realize. So. Mm-hmm. um what happened was when we dropped we introduced that night time the van obviously saved money uh, power it therefore saved money but it actually got healthier beds the the end weight was maintained mortality rates were improved mm-hmm. um and power and, a, and a, like a um uh, a naturally caring power trip wouldn't stress the birds out because they think oh it's just night time oh, and i'll have a sleep now so so you had this improved healthier bed which led to increase in revenue because you had more beds that made it to, mm. to to sort of full life as it were. Um, but you also had this, um, reduced, um, cost and power. So you had the, those better margins. So yeah. I think that links nicely into any sort of environmental or any energy saving strategy really does impact bottom lines in a positive way. Um, we didn't talk about carbon footprint back in those days. Um, but you know in relation so yeah so in relation to carbon footprint i remember back in the 80s early 90s doing chemistry calcs and it was very much 0.03 was the percent was the number for co2 in the air in the atmosphere for our calcs and now students are looking at 0.04 percent so you know just in just in the lifetime since i've been at school it's it's increased by 20% so um yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting uh, analogy. Your your farm life to, you know, managing uh, energy security, uh, process optimization. Uh, yeah, very very strong parallels between the two. Definitely.
1: I think yeah, there was. I think you know there was. We did move on to sort of this element of rewilding. I think my dad called it rewilding mm-hmm. the the. You called the, rewilding then. Well, I think my dad said something like "back to basics." I think he said or something like uh, that, yeah. um, and we introduced. Um, seeds back into uh, the chicken's diet which sounds a little bit strange because that's what birds eat, see? What eat yeah but but they don't not in farming they they eat a, yeah. a processed um meal that that um has got everything they need yeah. so um and the reason why the cat eats seeds is because uh, the where they are they live they grow up they don't have grit
0: so yeah so we so my dad introduced they the grit them. in their crop to break down the break down the husk of the seed because they don't have yeah. teeth on
1: yeah exactly so we so we used our own wheat that we grew which was Mm. grown using the manure that the chickens produced and the pigs and then we introduced that back into their diet with um sort of gravel pads um Mm. and again this drove down the cost of the sort of processed food and saved some Mm. money but the last sort of the, the last sort of week of the chickens we had to remove that because the, the, we get getting complaints that it was gritting the machine. Oh, supermarket wouldn't <laughs> <like it. laughs> yeah, yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
0: yeah. Natural uh, bird. <laughs> so yeah, I think, yeah.
1: so there's lots of like circular economies, symbiotic mm. relationships, all of those sustainable practices going on throughout my whole growing up because of just the nature of what a farm, a farm is. And I think I've only really spoken about energy, but as you can imagine, there's a mm. lot of engineering that goes on on a farm yeah I mean, yeah I know. there's probably a different story with me fixing stuff with my, my welder and, and things like that it,
0: it, it's good i know i know as well um phil you're a keen athlete i am i wonder how you know your uh, that side of, of you um comes into the work that you do every day as well is it is any element of your of your um your sport side of it that you apply to your work to
1: um i think they they probably is i think um always being prepared and and well researched as an athlete you Mm -hmm. you look into best practices you know what you know what do i need to achieve you come up with game plans and strategies and you do the same thing in the workplace and then once you've done stuff you go back for a feedback loop and work out well. what could i do better where could i improve uh and that type of thing so there's definitely um elements of sporting your sporting yep. activities come into the workplace um yeah but i think it's probably being prepared um and putting the putting the hard yards in um yeah is what we do in in our workplace don't we we get well researched we understand latest technologies we provide expert advice um on the yep. things that we know about
0: yeah, very, very good. Any major sporting challenges uh, you're, you're looking forward to this year? I know you're coming off ba- uh, the back of a bad injury. But, no, uh, my, look my, un-
1: my ankle, um, which sounds really little and just a sprained ankle, but it's yeah, not me for six. But um, So this year is, um, I want to do an adventure race, but I need to wait for my ankle to get better. Um, mm-hmm. And I can probably announce on a podcast that I want to swim the channel at some point. So now I've oh, put wow. it out there. It's. Yeah, it's out there. <laughs> out there. Woo, sugar. <laughs> <laughs> no.
0: so, Very yeah. good. I that's really interesting background, Phil, and uh, it give us uh, an idea of what makes you tick, uh, yeah. uh, which is great. And I'm really delighted that you're going to be a co host in this podcast. And we've chatted about this and what we want the podcast to be. And we've got some. Uh, uh, a, a podcast that we we both admire like the infinite mon- monkey cage that's Absolutely. what we expect we'll see how we get get there but uh what, what does it what does the podcast mean to you what are you hoping to get get out of this um
1: well uh probably that about a more balanced understanding um of the different facets of energy transition and i think by getting um guests in to, to talk about their specialist areas will mm. be um you know i'll start i'll learn stuff which is which i which i love doing um it's yeah. a very complex and sort of ever-changing landscape um and you you know you can't be at the forefront of everything just the, the niche that you're in so just getting lots of those different um opinions and understandings from hopefully a wide range of of uh, guests guests on to, yeah. and, that, and that open debate and dialogue um yeah. and hopefully help inform sort of listeners on the you know the narrative and the thinking and they can take it maybe yeah. into some of the projects that they're working on or the areas of their life um no
0: no you've been a keen supporter of over a bow since uh stuart and i were doing it for the last must be three years now which evolved out of the industry dinners we used to do in 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 aberdeen so uh yeah, I mean, it's it, we've we've always had interesting people in the room mm. and learned something. And I was meant, I meant to mention previously when you talk about the farm last episode. I know you will listened to it. We had Andy Samuel on, uh who's now rewilding his farm in, <laughs> in Devon. So I'm sure he'll listen to this and uh, he'll uh, he'll he'll pick up on some of the point points you meant, mentioned. So uh, as I mentioned at the beginning, <coughs> this is going to be the last episode of over about. In this format, uh, we've chosen to to change the format slightly because I think over a barrel was getting a bit restrictive in what we wanted to talk about in um, challenges in net zero mm. decarbonisation. <clears throat> I don't like to use word energy transition. I think it's used too much. We're, we're moving beyond that. But we, we want to open up the podcast a bit more to be more nationally rever- relevant and take in in, in, in more topics. Um, We've got a name up our sleeve which we'll tease to the audience at some point.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um but, you know, what topics are you hoping to cover in, in, in the in the new format? Um
1: so the I'd say the topics in the new format, so it would be around energy generation, it would be around energy storage, um rewilding the energy sector would be quite a an apt one. Um understanding what the technologies are out there and, and talking to some OEMs maybe. Um understanding um sort of funding and finance there's a lot of um different yeah. um funding and finance um initiatives to help with this sort of decarbonization it's not cheap uh in, in any stretch um and then understanding infrastructure and development there's going to be a requirement for some really big infrastructure in the uk moving forward yeah. whether yeah. that's grid upgrades new plant um it, it it's quite um significant what we need to do. Um, there's probably topics around circular economies and sustainable practices. And one that I l- like that I it was from um a lecturer down in Bristol about the rebound effect and understanding um when we do make some of these changes that we just don't use it to to then use more of it. So um you know if you, oh, yeah. yeah if you're driving a, a car that's in theory, yeah. le- better for the environment. You might end up driving it more often yeah, and on yeah. shorter trips. So therefore, you, the end result is that it's actually the same carbon footprint because you actually it's less intense when you're driving it, but you're doing more miles. So it's possibly yeah. um, something around that would be would be good as well.
0: Yeah, all well, those topics you talked about there. I mean, it, it, both you and I in our day-to-day work, we're coming across these things uh, every day, and uh, there's lots of interesting people we can bring onto the show and explore some of these uh, areas. It's going to be going to be quite exciting, and uh, we're going to uh, bring your new philosophy course to bear and some of the frameworks <laughs> the as well, which will be, will be good.
1: Yeah, no, that that would be good. I think um, I think the premise for the the podcasters to to understand how to make best use of what we have in a responsible way and, and sort yeah. of look at protecting protecting our planet as we do it. Um I think lots of people talk about how our planet is fragile um and the environment's very fragile, but I think it I think it's the opposite. I think it is very tough. Life is resilient mm. and it's gonna be around for a very long time beyond beyond us it's just what we do with it while we're while we're in it and how do we protect protect future generations we don't pollute it we don't destroy all the natural resources and we look after our animals so that ultimately um we can um we can have clean air and and low pollution levels and we can probably watch david attenborough's planet earth with some low level of guilt (laughs) while we're doing Mm -hmm. it so I feel tremendously guilty when I watch it sometimes.
0: Um, oh yeah, yeah, me, me too. Because it's always amazing the natural world, but he, uh the 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 he always ends on uh, the bit that we're doing to to to, to wreck the planet. So yeah, yeah. be good to uh, turn the clock back a bit. Well, Phil, I'm really excited about uh, working with you on the podcast and bringing uh, exciting, interesting people on the show. And I know we're both going to enjoy it and and learn a lot. And hopefully, we can disseminate some of that uh, interesting stuff to to the audience so brilliant that you're here really looking forward to working with you
1: yeah thank you very much john thank you for inviting me to to co-host it's um Yeah. yeah very much looking forward to it and definitely engaging with some interesting people